to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest is John Acuff. John is a New York Times bestselling author, the host of a great podcast called All It Takes is a Goal, and a really popular speaker. He's written seven books, and they have cool titles like Start, Do Over, and Finish. And now he's written a book called Soundtracks. I love all of his books, but this one is my favorite. It's about all those broken records we keep playing in our brains that just aren't helpful, and he explains some fun ways to change them. As a therapist, I love the fun and simple solutions John offers to change those unhelpful thinking patterns. Changing the way you think is key to building the mental strength you need to be your best. Some of the things John shares in this episode are how to recognize when you're overthinking, how to replace those unhelpful soundtracks, some of the soundtracks he's borrowed from other people, and much, much more. Make sure to stick around until the end for the therapist take. This is a part of the show where I break down my guest's mental strength strategies and share how you can start applying them to your own life. So here's John Acuff on how to be mentally strong when your brain is filled with unhelpful soundtracks. Let's do it. All right. John Acuff, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thanks for having me, Amy. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I have been a fan of uh, all of your books. I think this is book number six for you, right? Book seven. Book, I'm this is very seven. productive. I'm crazy productive. I, I'm, I'll probably write a book during this podcast. I'm just so productive. You know, I'm not surprised. And now that you've written this book and you're not overthinking, you have time to do that. So your new book is called Soundtracks. Great yep. title. Oh, thanks. I've, it's been a lot of fun. My, my thing there was a soundtrack is a repetitive thought. I've heard people say a thought is a leaf on a river or a cloud in the sky, a car on the highway. But for me, a soundtrack captures that power of a thought to be playing in the background of your life and changing the entire moment often without you even knowing. So is that what, when you talk about overthinking, is that how you define it? Is that, how do you know when you're overthinking? So I'll give you a definition on then I'll give you the biggest distinction between that and say being detailed or being prepared. So overthinking, my definition is when what you think gets in the way of what you want. So there's something you want and you know it and you're excited about it, but all these thoughts get in the way of actually doing it. So that's how I define it. When what you think gets in the way of what you want. And the difference between overthinking and say being prepared or being organized or detailed is being prepared always leads to action. Overthinking always leads to more overthinking. So being prepared leads to you launch the book, you ask the person out, you move to the city, you did the thing you were thinking about and you were detailed. It's great. Like maybe, you know, I have a friend who measures everything he brings on a hiking trip for by the ounce. Like he'll go like, no, I broke my toothbrush in half because it was too heavy and he wants to save two ounces, but he actually goes on the trip. That's being prepared. Overthinking is when you just get stuck in an overthinking loop and you never actually turn that into action. Oh, I like that. That's a great distinction. And one of the things I loved about your book is you talk about your own personal examples. Can you share a few of those times in your life when you know that you're overthinking something? Oh, yeah. Well, the one I joke about sometimes is when somebody says, hey, let's go to a new restaurant, I immediately start overthinking the parking. 
Like, I don't care about the food. I don't care about the chef. I don't, I go, is it, is it going to be like a valet situation? Is it going to be like one of those hipster parking lots where they're like, they have 50 tables at four spots to park. Are we talking about like down the street? Is it on the street parking? Is there a parking deck? And I start overthinking the parking versus going, I can't wait to try a new restaurant. That's going to be really fun. Um, so that's one that's kind of a funny one. Um, I overthink. And then there's, there's other ones. I mean, there's more significant ones. Like one of the things I say is we have broken soundtracks, soundtracks that are getting in the way. So a broken soundtrack for me, a personal example would be, I got taken advantage of in a business situation years ago. And it's really easy to start thinking that's going to happen every time you have to be really careful. And I start overthinking that. So then I walk into the next business situation that's completely different from the last one but i've got this expectation on be on the guard like they're going to try to do something like you got to be careful i go in with really clenched fists versus going hey let's figure out if we can do a project together like let's have fun on this project because i'm listening to a broken soundtrack often from years ago and i have to go you know what i don't want to listen to that one anymore it's not helpful in this situation i need a new one instead that that's really smart to look at it that way. And you found that we don't really talk about overthinking, but you did some research and found most of us do this, right? Yeah. It's one of those things. Um, you talk about, um, issues that people all, all have, but think they're the only ones that have, like, I would say the same thing of loneliness. People are lonely and they think I'm the only one lonely. And lonely is one of those things where it's kind of like overthinking. It feeds on itself. You think, well, I'm lonely. So I should spend some time alone figuring out how to not be lonely versus going, what if somebody else is that I can connect? So with overthinking, um, we did a big study. I've got a PhD named Mike Peasley who helps me research books. And so he and I asked 10,000 people, do you struggle with overthinking? And more than 99.5% of them said yes. And so it's massive. And this was before 2020. What I've been telling people is 2020 was catnip for overthinking because now every little thing is a thing. Like my favorite example is somebody a few weeks ago went to shake my hand. And right before they did, I thought, should I refuse? Should I give him a fist bump? Should I give him an elbow instead? Should I shake it? But then immediately dip my whole arm into a vat of hand sanitizer just to say, let me just scrub off this deadly pandemic. He just tried to murder me and my grandparents with, sir. Like, is this a handshaking room? What does it say about us politically? And two years ago, do you know what I thought when somebody shook my hand? Nothing. But now every little thing you do has so many extra layers of thinking about it. So I think it's an epidemic. And so it was really fun to be able to say, hey, Here's something we spent years working on. Everybody does it. And here's a way to do it in a productive way. Yeah, I think the timing of your book couldn't be better because you're right. During the pandemic, people sat at home. And what did we do? We thought and we watched the news and thought more about our lives. What's going to happen next? What are we doing wrong? We looked at Instagram and saw people that were bragging about how many closets they'd cleaned. And we thought, I lost weight during the pandemic. The pandemic was when I got my abs. Like you got pandemic abs? Like that's it. Like what? And so, yeah, we fed ourselves a lot of extra overthinking opportunities, I'd say, during the pandemic. And I'm a therapist and most of everybody who lands in my office, whatever they are diagnosed with, whether it's depression, anxiety, something along those lines, it often goes back to overthinking. People who ruminate on the past or they just keep rehashing everything or they second guess everything that they just did. And then, like you say, they can't get out of their own way. But as a therapist, we call it sort of clinical stuff, like your cognitive distortions, and you have to reframe it. But what I loved about your book is you just called it soundtracks, and you made it really simple. There's a whole bunch of exercises in your book that make tons of sense. And as soon as I flipped open your book, the first page I found was, what would Kanye do? Can you explain (laughs) that one? 
Yeah. So I realized in my life that I, one of my broken soundtracks was must be nice. It was kind of this, this voice of somebody on the outside. If something good happened to me, I'd feel guilt. It was, you know, and I, I would want to self-sabotage and go, oh, well, you know, cause must be nice to be able to do that. Must be nice to travel around the world on a sailboat. Must be nice. And I'd have this guilt when good things would happen. And I, I really teach people, if you're going to come up with a new soundtrack, because the book does three things. It encourages you to retire broken soundtracks, replace them with new ones, and repeat the new ones so often they become as automatic as the old ones. So it's retire, replace, repeat. And so the first thing I say is, I'd never say, sit down with a blank piece of paper and just try to come up with some new soundtracks. That's overwhelming. It's, you know, in the same way that I don't believe in writer's block, I believe in idea bankruptcy. I never sit down to a blank piece of paper. I always bring some ideas. I always bring some friends. So the first step is you borrow somebody else's soundtrack. You start to become aware of, wow, this person said that and it was really inspiring or wow, that was encouraging, that song lyric. And so I was watching um, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and Dave Chappelle told a story of young Kanye West where... Dave Chappelle essentially said, this is when we knew he was going to be a star because we were watching these amazing skits that nobody had seen yet on the Chappelle show, the Rick James get all these things. And Kanye gets a call and he's like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that because my life is dope and I do dope stuff. And I just thought that is perfect. Like, so my life is dope. So when something good happens, instead of analyzing it, instead of criticizing it, instead of feeling guilt, because there's so many people um, you know, especially even during the pandemic, I, I'm a corporate speaker. So I go around the country speaking to companies. There's companies I've talked to that said kind of in a hushed tone, like, yeah, we actually had a pretty good year because we were like, and they feel bad about it. So shame wins either way. You feel ashamed that you failed or you feel ashamed that you succeeded. So the Kanye one was to go, no, my life is dope. Like that was a cool thing that happened to me. And I'm going to receive that. You can't be grateful if you won't admit you got a gift. And so we always talk about gratefulness and how important that is. but Sometimes the first step to being grateful is to go, I got a gift. And I, I really like, it is a gift. Like, and I'm not going to feel bad about the gift. I'm going to receive the gift and enjoy the gift. And I'm going to share the gift with people, but I'm, but I'm first going to go like, that was dope. That was a really good gift. I love that. So many people feel bad about being happy or they wait for the other shoe to drop or they feel like they aren't yeah. worthy of enjoying something. So that's a really good one. How do we find ones to borrow for our own lives? What are your recommendations? If I have a soundtrack that isn't working for me, and rather than make my own up, yeah. I'm sure I can borrow one from somewhere, but how do I find it? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say, because people say, well, how do I know if I even have what I wanted to retire? Like, how do I know I have a broken one? So the easiest, fastest way to figure out if you have a broken soundtrack is to write down something you want to do. Write down a desire, write down a hope. And it could be big, it can be small. It could be like, I want to start a family. Maybe I want to start a podcast. I want to write a book. I want to go back to school. Write down something you want to do and then listen to the first thoughts that come next. Listen to your reaction because every reaction is an education. So if you have a reaction that goes, you're too young to do that, you don't have enough experience or that's what's funny about fear is it, it flips a coin. It'll tell you you're too young one day and then your mid thirties, it goes, you're too old. Like you missed your moment. Like everybody, like I always think about that because I'm 45. Like there's no top 50 under 50 list. Like once you're in your forties, they're just like, yeah, you should be doing stuff. <laughs> like you should just have some stuff in motion. Um, and so the first thing you do is you try to identify, okay, is there a broken one that I kind of want to get out of the way? Um, as far as how do you borrow from other people? I think you just get curious. You, you get curious. My favorite definition of creativity is by Dorothy Parker. And she says, creativity is a wild mind and a disciplined eye. So the wildness is you collect all these different topics. So you collect something a kid said, a song lyric, something you read in a book, 
you know, the way, you know, a waitress described her favorite meal, you collect all these things and you have this wild mind and then you have the discipline to see the relationship between them and see the connection between them. So for instance, um, I had a friend the other day, probably about a week ago, we were having a conversation and his business was growing. He said, I feel a little out of control. And he said, but you know what they say? You can have control or growth. You don't get both. And I thought, oh, that's such a good soundtrack. So I wrote that down. I'm just trying to pay attention. I'm trying to, I'm trying to change, you know, train my eyes, train my ears, train my heart to listen to those things. Another one that I put in the book that I just love, Patsy Claremont, really successful author. She's probably in her early 70s now. She's written 40 books, brilliant person. We had lunch about two years ago and I asked her about her first book and she said, the first book I wrote, when the edits came back, they were covered in red ink, just red ink all over the page. And it felt like my writing was dying. Like it was really hard to handle. So I asked the editor, Next time you edit it, can you change the color of the ink? And she said, the next round of edits came back and they were in green. And this time, instead of feeling the page was dying, it felt like it was growing. And I took from that, what if when you receive feedback, it's an invitation to growth, not an attack on who you are? Like, can you imagine how fast you could grow if when somebody gave you feedback, you saw it as green ink, you saw it as an invitation to grow? Like, so that's what I mean. I like, I'm just trying to pay attention. Because there's more soundtracks than you think in your world. Like there's things that are inspiring to you. There's things that light you up and they don't have to be massive. Again, it can be something small. I'm not telling people like go off on a vision quest and hope you find like answer to the universe. I'm saying a friend said something interesting to me at lunch and I wrote it down because I thought, wow, I think there's something there and I'm, I'm going to listen to that. And I'm going to add that kind of the, to the rock tumbler of my brain and see if it's connected to anything else and see if it leads to growth. So do you have a notebook? Do you write these down in one place? hundred percent. I have I have a notebook and then I have a wall, a huge uh, piece of paper on my wall. Um, like one a friend of mine the other day, Ben said, one of his favorite statements is underdo it, underdo it. Because we have this temptation to overdo it. And so he said, like, there's some things in life you should underdo. And so I wrote it down on my wall because I didn't want to, I didn't want to forget that. Um, I had a friend the other day, we were talking about broken soundtracks and his name is um, Steven Scoggins. And he said, you know, Growing up, one of our family mantras that my dad would say is, Scoggins don't get ahead, we get by. And as a kid, that landed so heavy that his dad's thought was, we don't get ahead, we get by. And he had to work in his adulthood to go, that's not true. Like I get to, I get to grow, I get to change. And so yeah, I have a notebook. Um, I remember Stephen Wright, the comedian, used to carry around a notebook when thoughts would strike him. And so I think there's all these amazing things that we're often so distracted or so busy that we just miss them. And I'm not saying you have to write down everything. I don't write down a thousand things a day, but maybe, you know, once a day, twice a day, something, something sparks something. I go, I don't know if that's anything yet, but I'm curious. I don't know if that's anything yet, but, but let's see. I'm going to at least add it to the mix. I like that. And I like the example of your friend who had a broken soundtrack, but it was their family motto. And so to be able to take that step sometimes and think I'm going to go against this family motto because that's not working. Or if I keep believing that I'm going to stay stuck, sometimes that's hard to do. Very hard, very hard. I mean, and sometimes what happens, that's why the third step is repeat. And sometimes it was interesting when the book came out within the first 48 hours, I had so many people that would say, I've already read it. I already listened to it three times and my new soundtrack's not working. And I'd go, but the, the book came out 48 hours ago. So I know you haven't had a hard, long time to work on it. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make with mental health, with fitness goals, with any type of goal is we give the problem a year and the solution a week. So I'll meet people that go, my diet isn't working, my exercise isn't working. I go, how long have you been doing it? I said, 10 days. And I'll say, well, how long did it take you to gain the weight? 10 years. So I gave the problem 10 years to develop and the solution only 10 days. So I think a lot of times there are things we learn that change our whole pers- 
perspective on everything. So for instance, we've all had a difficult coworker that we thought was just the biggest jerk. And then we discover her husband has cancer. And suddenly everything we know about them has changed in an instant. That does happen. There's other times when we've got a broken soundtrack that we have to actively work on, but it's work the work. And like, it's worth the work. You get to say, I have the permission to do this. It's simpler than I think. That's what I enjoyed about the book. I think that the book is a Trojan horse. Um, it's a Trojan horse for truth because the questions, the activities, like nobody's going to go, this is really complicated. They're going to go, this is simple. But then if they sit with it for 30 seconds, they're going to go, wait a second. Like one of my favorite things in the book is there's three questions you ask every broken soundtrack. They're super easy. So when you find something that's broken, you say, is it true? Is this thing I'm telling myself true? Um, the second question you ask is, is it helpful? The more I listen to it, do I feel more encouraged or discouraged? Does it push me forward or pull me back? Third question is, is it kind? Is it kind to myself to say this? If I said it to a friend, but they still want to be my friend. And all those words are simple. We've all heard the words true, helpful, kind. That's, that's not revolutionary. But when you ask them, especially in that order, you'll be surprised at what you discover. One of my favorite moments recently was I was on a podcast and the podcast host in the middle of the podcast went, oh no. I said, what? And he said, I, I have a soundtrack. I need to retire. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I've had the number one podcast in my space for nine months. And the soundtrack I listen to is you're just lucky. You're just lucky. You're just lucky. He said, if a friend came over and told me they'd worked really hard for nine months to do something, I'd never say you're just lucky. So if I wouldn't say it to them, why am I okay, why am I okay saying it to me? And that's to me what's fun about the activities, the exercises. The last thing an overthinker needs is a 900-page book. Like What I try to do, my job is to is to take really complex things like thinking, boil them down to simple practices, and then tie them to action. Because my belief is that thoughts always turn into actions, turn into results. So a lot of times we want different results, but we haven't done the thought work yet. And we get the different results for a week or two, but they don't stick. And, and I believe if you'll work on the thoughts, the actions come next, and then you get the results. Definitely. I see people who still believe like this isn't going to work, but they put in this half-hearted effort, believing I'm not a, I'm not a runner, so I can ever run a mile or I can never write a book. Yet they sit down and kind of write a little bit. And then when it doesn't work out, they're like, see, I knew it wasn't going to work, but they weren't really trying and they never changed the way that they thought or that belief, which is why I appreciate that you talked about, is this helpful? A lot of people come in my therapy office believing something like people like me can't succeed, but they believe it a hundred percent. And so at some point, no matter what we try to do, they just really can't get rid of that. So we said, well, what, what do you gain from believing that? And is it helpful? And at some point they might be able to say, well, holding on to this belief probably isn't that helpful in life. Okay, well then what could help you make it so you only believe it maybe 90%? Mm -hmm. And we kind of chip away at it a little bit at a time because otherwise, no matter what they do in life, as long as they believe I'm not going to be, ever be successful, it's not going to happen. Well, and you know, with the way the brain works, I, I always, I joked in the book, the brain can be kind of a jerk. Like there's three things it does. It distorts your memory. So it doesn't tell you the exact truth about what happened. The second thing it does is it confuses fake trauma with real trauma. So you have something happen and you immediately release all these opioids as if you've been attacked physically. And the third thing is cognitive bias. It likes to believe what it's already believed. So if you started believing a long time ago, I can never be a success. Your brain is amazing at finding proof points of that and saying, see, here's more evidence, here's more evidence, here's more evidence. And my argument is that 
you can train it to do just the opposite, to say, I can be a success and I'm going to look for ways that prove that. And it can be challenging because I kind of think about it, the phrase I use is a pocket jury. I think everybody has a pocket jury. It's like this little jury in their pocket that is quick to go, see, I knew it wouldn't work, see? And it's like this huge court case and they've been gathering evidence for years. So you might have to show up with some new evidence to go, well, actually this thing worked. Well, actually I worked on this. Like, that's not true. I have data here. I have proof. And so, yeah, it becomes a really fun process. Um, and you're right. It can be about chipping away at it because um, there's some things that are true, but aren't helpful. So like, if you wanted to start a podcast, you could say, I have a soundtrack. I don't know how to start a podcast. That might be true. But is that helpful? Does telling yourself that over and over again make you investigate and explore? Or does it make you shrink back and go, it'll never work? And so you go, okay, if I can't say yes to all three of those questions, then there's probably something to retire. And you have a whole chapter about gathering evidence, because as you say, we tend to just gather the evidence that reinforces our beliefs. We screen out anything to the contrary. But when you flip the switch and you say, well, what, what evidence do I have that maybe this thought isn't true? It opens up your mind to this whole new world of, oh, yeah, there is a lot of contrary evidence here. Yeah. And it's really fun. I mean, I think that's the I'm sure you've experienced this a thousand times as a therapist when somebody learns they have permission to not be that way. Right. Or permission to let go of those thoughts, or permit, you know, and all this. It feels like, it feels like you've gone into um, like a toy store and you've got an endless budget, and you go, "Are you sure I'm allowed to be in here?" And you're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." You get the whole store, and you're like, "I'm just gonna stay right here in this front. I won't bother anybody." Like, no, you get to roam the entire store. You have all this permission to go. Okay, well, here's the story I want to write about my life. Here's the actions I want to do. Here's, you know, for me, that was 2008. I was stuck in my career in my early 30s. And you kind of hope you get stuck in your late 50s. But I, I was an advanced learner um, and kind of like trailed off in my early 30s. And I started blogging on the side of my day job. And I, I started to realize, okay, I can share ideas with the world. And then somebody said, hey, would you come speak at our event? And I'd never spoken at an event. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know he got paid for it. All I had was this tiny little thought that said, I think I can be a public speaker. I think I can be an author. And that thought, I turned into action and it turned into results. And it changed my life starting to believe that thought, starting to live out of that thought, and then starting to see the results of that. I didn't write a book for the first 32 years of my life. I've written seven in the last you know, 11 or 12 years. Like, there's a direct consequence of going, I'm going to choose to believe this. And then I'm going to back it up with a ton of action. And then I'm going to actually get to see the results. And so that's why I'm such a believer in the power of your thoughts is that I've seen it work in my life. And then we tested the ideas with thousands of people. That's what's fun. I've got really generous readers who will go, hey, I'll try this out for 30 days first before you put in a book. Let's, let's see which parts work, which parts don't. And then the, the final product, you know, my, one of my favorite things was, we gave everybody whose story was in the book a copy of the book, and the list was 35 people. And it was really fun to go, oh, that's right. Lachelle told us her story. Oh, that's right. Mark told us her story. Because otherwise, the book is just a version of my life. And unless you're exactly me, it's, you can't relate to it. But if I bring a bunch of other people with a, you know, with a diverse background, a diverse life experience, you can go, I'm a single mom. And that single mom example is right where I am. That's helpful. And so that, that ended up being a really fun part of, of this uh, writing process. And it makes the book so fun to read too. And so, because some of us have soundtracks that don't relate to maybe you, as you said, 100%. we have other ones that were like, oh yeah, I've been there before too. 
I'd love to know what you think about the labels that we place on ourselves. Uh, so, for instance, I was a really shy kid. So the thought of becoming a public speaker at first was, I can't do this because I'm shy. <laughs> and yeah. I had to relearn, like, no, you can be a different person. I've heard you talk about running, too, that you it took you a long time to say, yeah, I'm a runner, even though I go running. Yeah. Yeah. I, for me, what my answer would be, people go, oh, are you a runner? I'd go, I am not a runner. I run. Like, I would draw this, like, finite distinction. And eventually my wife was like, you know, you've run five half marathons. It, it feels like a runner. Like you feel like a runner. And she was right. You see the same with writers. Writers go, I'm not a writer. Like I like to write. I've worked on four novels, like, but I'm not, I'm not a writer. I think we're, I think we're classic label makers. Um, I think there's labels that people sometimes give us and we don't know how to let go of those. And we say them. The problem with a label is that every time you touch it, and say it out loud again, it's like putting a handle on it and it gets easier to pick up the next time. So some of these labels, you've got a thousand handles on them and you can pick them up in a second. So if you're five minutes late to the car rider pickup line, you go, I'm the worst mom because you've been listening to this label over and over again. So I think it's a really helpful, uh, healthy exercise to go, okay, what are the labels I'm doing right now? Like, what are the labels that I'm just assuming, you know, I'll, I'll see people go, I'm not a natural leader. And they'll get all these leadership opportunities and they'll shrink back from them because they go, well, no, 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 that like, and they have this idea of somebody else was like built in a factory and is amazing at leading or entrepreneurs. I'll meet people who are making a lot of money and go, I'm not a real entrepreneur. And what they mean by that is they're believing the world's version of an entrepreneur, which is like Warren Buffett started his first business as a zygote, like in the womb, he had a business, like he had a paper out at two. And then he like, and they go, that's real. I'm not real. And I think part of that ties back to something I'm sure you guys talk about a lot, which is imposter syndrome. I think that that's one of the biggest broken soundtracks people deal with. And a woman asked me about that the other day. And she said, how do I get over imposter syndrome? And I said, I, I think the, the wrong word in this, the broken word is over. I think you trade over for through. Because over is a word of perfectionism. How do I get over the wall? And I did it one time. Through is I'm going to go through it. And so I anticipate it. I plan for it. I recognize it. Um, I go through it. Same with fear. Like whenever somebody tells me, you can become fearless. I don't think that's true because I think at each new level, you try something new, there's a new level of fear. So when I spoke to 10 people for the first time, I had 10 person fear. And then I worked on it. I got, you know, I got through it. And then I did 100 people, 100 person fear. So my, you know, my soundtrack, one of them that I use for fear is that fear gets a voice, not a vote. Like I recognize it. I see the voice. I, I see what it's trying to teach me sometimes, but it doesn't get a vote. It doesn't get to sit at the table and go, we're not doing that thing. And so I think, you know, for me, through is so much more helpful than over because I've written seven books. Some of them hit the New York Times bestsellers list, but I still have days where I don't feel like a real writer or I don't feel like I've accomplished anything. And that's me dealing with imposter syndrome. And I'm going through it that day versus feeling like I should have been over it by now and feeling shame that I'm not yet. Like recognizing, oh, this is a through situation. Like we're going to figure this out. Like we're going through it. That's so important. And I experienced the same thing. I'm a therapist who wrote a book is what I used to tell people. And then I remember the first time somebody called me an author and I was like, well, no, I'm a therapist that wrote a book. It felt so uncomfortable to have yeah. the term author attached to it. It took years to finally be able to say, yeah, I guess now that I've written four books, I can finally say yeah, I'm I think an you're, author. Yeah, you're in the club. You're in right? the club. 100%. <laughs> uh, and then what you said too about uh, the fear. I absolutely agree. Sometimes people come into therapy and they want to get over something or they want to say, I want to get rid of all the stress in my life. I don't want to deal with any of these things anymore. I never want to have anxiety ever again. 
we're supposed to have those things. And as you say, I love the word through because otherwise we look at everything like we're either healed or we're not. We're fixed or we're not. And that sort of all or nothing mentality keeps us from thinking that we're never quite good enough. Oh, that all or nothing will just will just crush you. And it, it ends up being streak, streak thinking too. Like I've done a hundred days in a row and if I miss a day, you know, like I always teach people about the day after perfect, which is the most important day because it's the day after the thing you thought would be perfect didn't go perfectly and you have to kind of still live in that moment. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I think that's something um, that I think about a lot is, okay, am I making it too black or white? You know, the, the lesson that I put in the book that was most helpful to me was I talked to this guy named David Thomas. He's another therapist. And I was asking him these questions about negativity, stress. And he said, the problem is people want it there to be a switch. They think there's a switch and if they can just find it, they can switch it off forever. So they jump from switch to switch to switch because they'll have a good month. They'll try yoga and for it works for a little bit. But then one day they wake up and there's new stress. And they go, ah, oh, the yoga switch didn't work. So they jump to another one, another one, another one. He said, it's not a switch. It's a dial. He said, there's going to be times in life where the dial gets turned up to 11 and you have the ability to go, oh, it's at an 11. What are my turn down techniques to turn it down a little bit? And there's so much freedom in that because instead of feeling like a failure when new stress shows up, you say, oh, it's at an 11. Here's my list of things I do to turn it down. Let me see which one of these today is helpful. Like, is it the walk around the block? Is it a conversation with a friend? Is it my favorite music? Is it, you know, you have a personal list of things that help you turn down that dial versus going, something's wrong with me because I'm not done with this thing yet. Um, as if you could put a time frame on, you know, on real challenges. Like you can't, there's not, it's like how many licks to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop. Like if somebody said, like, I'm sure people ask you go, all right, I'm willing to try therapy, but I need you to tell me the exact number of sessions this is going to take. And you go like, well, well what is that? How, what does that even mean? Like, it's going to take the, the amount it's going to take. And we're going to figure that out together. Yes. And as you said before, people want things to happen fast. So they come in after two therapy sessions and say, this isn't working. And yeah. we'll have to talk about the fact that 10 years of depression doesn't go away in two weeks, but here's some yeah. of the things we can try. And here's where we can look for progress. And here's where we can give ourselves pace. And even just giving yourself the gift to deal with that over time versus like, that's the first gift you give yourself is that I don't hold myself to a, the second visit should be fixed. Like, can you, I mean, you don't do that with any part of your life, you know, where you go, you know, people, even people who get gastric bypass, they know it's a process. Like you have to eat a certain way for the rest of your life. Like, it's not a, there's, you know, we want silver bullets a lot of times in life where I think the healing and the growth is really in the process. Um, and by the time you reach the destination, you've learned so many different things. You can actually appreciate the destination. And so would you say in terms of overthinking, we're all going to be a work in progress, something we can constantly work on, something that we're never going to be fixed? I think it's a practice. I think it's a, I think it's a practice. Um, that's what's, you know, what's been fun is that the concept's really simple. So I've already seen parents go, I've talked to my kids about it and we're changing our soundtracks because that's what's fun. Once you discover the power of soundtracks, you see that individuals have them, couples have them, families have them, companies have them. Like culture at a company is just a collection of soundtracks people are listening to at the same time and often they're accidental and you go, okay, we need to change our company soundtracks. So yeah, I think it's a practice. I think it's something that, you know, think about, Think about the last year. I talked to instance for a, to a lot of sales teams who would tell me, John, I was the king or queen of the pop-in. Like I'm a salesperson, get me in the room. If I bring donuts to the office, I can woo everybody. I can close the whole deal. And all of a sudden the pop-in was illegal. And so if they said, I'm a face-to-face -face person, that's a label. 
I'm a great face-to-face salesperson as a label because guess what? You're now in a Zoom world. Like same with you in therapy. If you said to yourself, I'm, I can only do therapy if I'm in the same room, you're really stuck. You had to des- develop some new skills, some new options. So yeah, I think it's always a practice and you're always going, here's a new challenge. But the, one of the soundtracks I give people is be a tourist. Like when you're facing something new, be a tourist and think about what do tourists have in common? They ask lots of questions. Um, they're not afraid to ask a question. Um, they don't pretend to be experts. You don't get to learn if you're busy pretending. Um, they work with experts. They say, hey, I do need a therapist or hey, I do need a coach. Um, they make mistakes. They get on the wrong subway. They go the wrong direction and they have fun. So if you approach change as a tourist, because we're all tourists to 2021, nobody right now, nobody listening would go, this is like my 50th global pandemic. I've actually been through so many of these. So I'm a bit of a pro. Like one of the soundtracks I tell people is write down on a piece of paper, this is my first global pandemic and put it on your fridge, put it on your computer because you're going to beat yourself up. You're going to feel like I should be doing better at this. And you need to remind yourself, no, no, wait, this is my first. Like this is a hunt. Like every parent I talk to who goes, I'm the worst at virtual school. I'm the worst that I go, yeah, you should be. You're probably terrible at hang gliding too because you've never done that. Do you know the worst time to learn a brand new skill? the middle of a deadly global pandemic. Like you talk about a recipe for stress. And so I think even a simple soundtrack, like this is my first global pandemic has a lot of freedom in it. I think so too. And as a therapist where I'm working with people on their soundtracks all the time, I still catch my own. I'll tell you one that changed my life because I'm a firm believer one sentence can change your life. My first... My first husband, he's passed away, but he was this like fun, charismatic guy who just never got embarrassed. And I was sort of the opposite, the shy person that tried to avoid embarrassment and failure at all costs. One day, this person walked by wearing these bright red pants and he's like, oh, I could really like to like to try a pair of red pants like that. I said, yeah, but do you think you could pull them off? And he said, I don't know, but I'd sure as hell try. And sort of that became my soundtrack yeah. because I thought rather than trying to figure out if I can succeed at anything, why not just make it that I'm going to try and see what happens? And it was like, well, if you fail or you get embarrassed, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, mine. I love that. My version of that is it'll be a success or a story. Like I'm either going to yeah. succeed at it or I'm going to get a story that's going to teach me and help other people. So if it, you know, if it doesn't work, well, I'm going to I'm going to get a story out of it. I'm going to get something I can connect with somebody out. Um, I, I love that. And one of our family mottos about trying my daughter, high school daughter, she's a, she's a rising senior, which is crazy to me to say. It makes me feel a thousand years old. Um, it, she's in high school band and the way band works is it's done by chairs. So first chair all the way to ninth chair based on your ability. First chair is the best, ninth chair is the, the one that's learning. And you can challenge the chair above you to get higher in the chairs. And so she started working really hard to challenge the chairs, started working her way through the ranks. And she asked this one kid, like, hey, I want to challenge you because you have to play the same piece of music. And he said, what are you, one of those tryhards? And he meant it as an insult. And she was like, yeah, that's right. I'm a tryhard. Let's go. And he didn't even challenge her. He just quit. So she just moved up without that. And so that became a family motto. Like, yeah, we're tryhard. Like, that's what we do. So I love that you... And it was tied to the red pair of pants. Like, I love that it's a sticky memory. Like, that's such a great sentence. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for your book. I know our listeners will get a lot out of it. Go buy a copy of Soundtracks if you don't have it yet. And it's filled with so many strategies, exercises. You've got lists in there, things to make it so easy for us. And fun fun stories. That was the thing I'd say. The My favorite story in the whole book, if you only read one story, is Colleen Berry. She's in the first chapter. And she's a woman who lost her job as a documentary filmmaker um, in Boston, had to do a bunch of different jobs to survive. And there's a lot of people in that same place right now. 
And one of her jobs was to be a receptionist at an office. And she decided, I'm not going to give in to resignation. I'm not going to give in to blame or entitlement. I'm going to chart a new path, change my mindset. And today she's the CEO of that company. And it's an amazing story. Like when I interviewed her for the book, I knew, okay, you're going to be on my podcast. And so I did an interview with her on my podcast called uh, All It Takes is a Goal. So if you only check out one story, like her story, her podcast episode, she is a boss. And I think that'd be really encouraging. I think so too. I can vouch for that. She's got a great story. So I hope our listeners do go check it out. John Acuff, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. John had so many helpful tips that it was tough to choose just a few. But here are three of my favorite strategies that you can start applying to your life right now. Number one, discover your broken soundtrack. John says the best way to uncover a broken soundtrack is to write down a goal for yourself. And then pay attention to the thoughts that you have about reaching that goal. Do you underestimate your ability to succeed? Do you tell yourself that there's no way you can reach your goal? Do you imagine all sorts of bad things happening to you? Whatever runs through your head is likely one of your broken soundtracks. I love this idea. So often, we believe everything that we think. And yet at the same time, we usually don't pay much attention to our thoughts. We just accept them to be true. So this is a really simple but effective way to capture the types of thoughts you have about yourself and your ability to succeed. And you'll likely notice some negative, unhelpful thoughts right away. Number two, borrow someone else's soundtrack. John shares a whole bunch of soundtracks he's borrowed from other people. Some are friends, some are people he's never met. But he writes them down and keeps track of the sayings, slogans, and catchphrases that resonate with him. That's a great idea. You don't have to create your own inspirational mantra to live by. You can easily borrow one from someone else. And something that makes this especially fun is that you don't have to dive deep into a serious conversation to figure out somebody else's soundtracks. You might just be sitting around having a casual conversation when you uncover an attitude or you hear a statement that just speaks to you. In fact, if you asked people to share some of their deepest held beliefs, I doubt you'd get a good soundtrack. Instead, the best soundtracks seem to be revealed in simple conversations. So be on the lookout for the interesting ones that you hear and write them down so you don't forget. And I bet you'll discover some interesting ones that you'll want to borrow too. Number three, present new evidence to your pocket jury. John says everyone has a pocket jury filled with negative voices that declare something's not going to work or that you can't succeed. Fortunately, you can learn to present new evidence to this pocket jury and you can change the way that you think. We talk a lot about looking for evidence in cognitive behavioral therapy, but John's idea to look at it like a pocket jury seems like a fun way to do it. When your brain tells you that you can't succeed or that you won't ever reach your goals, think about the times when you have succeeded or think about the evidence that you might do even better than you expect. That can help chip away at some of those unhealthy soundtracks. So give your pocket jury some new evidence to consider. So those are three of John's tips that I highly recommend. Discover your broken soundtracks, borrow someone else's soundtrack, and present new evidence to your pocket jury. For more of John's tips, go pick up a copy of his book, Soundtracks. It's filled with lots of strategies that could help change the way that you think. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcast.